up of war Triumphant over pain Who patient bears his cross below He follows in Welcome back to another episode of Stone Mountain Media. This is Dave. I'm here with Sean. Say hey, Sean. Hey. Sean, I'm going to take you through uh, a quick account of my eschatological journey. So my understanding of eschatology mm-hmm. and then how that shapes, influences what we're thinking about doing and hoping to do in the near future. Okay. Okay. And then Hit me uh, with it. we'll be off like wild horses. So one of my... And I wish a bigger influence on my life, but one of my big influences in life uh, early on was my grandfather, who did a lot to to properly indoctrinate me with the doctrines of grace, a view of God's sovereignty in everything, including salvation. And he uh, was a premillennial dispensationalist, a longtime deacon in his church, faithful man premillennial dispensationalist Mm -hmm. and then I also read the Left Behind series and so I would say how old were you when you read that? I mean a kid okay I didn't know it was that old yeah yeah so (laughs) that wasn't (laughs) (laughs) didn't grow up in Christian culture so I didn't know Uh, when those books started coming around yeah yeah many moons ago they're old enough to not only have uh, an original uh, movie series based off of them with Kirk Cameron, but then a remake with Nick Cage. That's how old they are. <laughs> okay. And I was young enough when I read them uh, to like not know where my parents were in the house, get all scared, run through the house, see my dad's clothes on his chair he always sat on and his shoes in front of it and think immediately, oh my gosh, I was left behind. Gotcha. And then do the you sinner's, know how, uh, sinner's prayer all over again. You know, like satirical work is always obviously more helpful and enjoyable when you know the original source that the thing is being satirical about. So I've had a temptation of late to read the Left Behind series because I recently ordered some books from Canon Press and got a free copy of Andy Wilson's satirical... Um, right Behind. Right Behind. So I'm like, ah. Well, Andy Wilson didn't write it. Mr. Sock wrote it? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'd love to read Mr. Sock's satirical work, but I'm like, ah, maybe I should need to read Left Behind, which I'm like, I don't really want to go down that road. Yeah. But. I did not reread Left Behind before I read Right Behind, and I still enjoyed it because of the writing style and uh-huh. the And also, my favorite thing about that book is how open and honest uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson are about how much Mrs. Wilson does not like the book. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> you rarely get such refreshing honesty from the wife of an author. So that, that shaped my eschatology, and, and I'll be honest... What it more shaped was um, a negative view of history, where history is going, right? So my basic view of the world was that it, was, it would get worse and worse and everything was going to burn and be made new as in everything burned was gone, redo, right? I didn't – I wasn't um, really fine-tuned in uh, – my dispensational chronology, for example. I probably was premillennial and had a, a rough understanding of what that was and 
believed it. But then quickly when I went to college, I became all millennial because all the guys I was reading and the guys that were mentoring me were all millennial. Who were some of the guys you were reading? Uh, who influenced that? I mean, yeah. basically, all millennialism was the default of the evangelical world at the time. So it was mm-hmm. the default of what I got. So, I mean, for example, Piper yep. is an anomaly in being primo. Right. And it doesn't, uh, honestly, come through in his teaching. So everyone else basically was Amil. Mm-hmm. And, and for example, like when I was, when I started asking eschatological questions to my mentor, uh, one of the, the number one guys he recommended was Art Azurdia, mm-hmm. who did a teaching series through Revelation Long that's one. yeah really popular, well-known, well-respected, and it's all millennial. And so I took all millennialism as a replacement of my premillennialism, but I maintained my negative view of history, right? And so what that meant, especially as I was stewing in the, um, stewing in the, the theology, the teaching of John Piper and guys like him, uh, was that basically there was more or less, and this is not, uh, Piper's not at fault of this, but this was built by the circles I ran in. Yep. Just, yeah. <laughs> just trying to stretch out over here in a can because I'm playing footsie with Sugar Sean. Boy, was that a sweet moment. But by the time I was coming to the end of college, I had this uh, basically view of the world where there, Jesus was not going to come back until there were converts. Uh, you know, I didn't have any expectations as what would happen as a result of that conversion. But Jesus was not going to come back until there were converts from every people group in the world. And so Joshua Project was a, was a big deal to me because here I had this very exhaustive list, supposedly, of all the people groups in the world and whether or not there were converts. Um, and Jesus was not going to come back until there were converts from every group. The world was burning, burning, burning. And the aim was to pull from the fire whomever we could uh, from every people group and then the end would come and we would be saved from this big mess uh, in this great cataclysmic ending. And so building culture, building long term naturally didn't develop from that view of the world because what's the point of building culture, building long term generational legacy Things when it's all going to burn anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so family wasn't a big deal to me as a result of that. And the, the best life possible uh, really was defined by find the darkest hole in the world and go there with the light of the gospel and, and get some converts. That was, that was the best aim. So I even had a, a spot in Afghanistan mapped out this is my ideal landing spot and what missions organization is going to get me there and uh, so that's I really threw myself into that in large part because of a negative eschatological view Uh, the world's in crisis will only ever be in crisis our best hope is to pull people off a sinking ship Mm -hmm. and let me get to this darkest hole because someone needs to why not me 
Well, uh, over time, uh, through theological influences the Lord put me in, in, in my life, while I was in Scotland uh, working as a pastoral assistant, I became post-millennial. And the, the big shift between my uh, back-in-the-day negative amillennialism and my then post-millennialism was my view of history going from uh, pessimism to optimism. I believed that the world was actually going to get better and better. Uh, now I do believe the world's going to get better and better uh, through the conquering work of Christ through his people obeying the Great Commission. The world's going to get better and better. The world's going to get more and more Christian. It's going to be renewed by the power of the resurrection as converts are made throughout the land, but not just converts, but as disciples are made throughout the land and families are established in righteousness, churches established in righteousness, eventually causing whole nations to gladly submit their need to Christ and serve him uh, society-wide. Which fundamentally is a switch between this idea that the gospel uh, is kind of this segregated part of our life, right? We have new hearts transformed by the power of the Spirit, and now we go preach the gospel to those who don't have the gospel, uh, but uh, not really thinking about or just believing it doesn't have an impact on uh, the rest of our lives and moving out of our lives, like you said, to families, to churches, to communities, to states, to nations. That's right. So even... Uh, even while in Scotland with this shift, it started to change the kinds of conversations, the the plans I was hatching with, with other brothers. And so mm-hmm. I, I was living with a pastor at the time. Uh, I was only paid something like 500, 600 bucks a month. So obviously housing was had, had to be free uh, in a place like Scotland. So yeah. I was living with a pastor and his family, uh, one of the most hospitable families I have ever met in my entire life. Uh, the guy is is a grade A guy. He's one of those dudes that you really want to emulate in terms of his competence uh, and his character and his convictions, right? If those are your three measurements of a man, he crushes it across the board. Good man. And, uh, and that's not in the slightest bit flattery. So I, I was living with him. And also, you come home every day. His wife would have the sweetest spread on the table, ready to go. House smelled like whatever was for dinner. It was awesome. And Scotland is so wet and dark. You come into a house well lit, smelling like warm food, prime time. So I started talking with him as my, as my views of eschatology shifted and fundamentally from negativity to uh, basically faith in the victorious reign of Christ over all things. So I grew in faith. And so my conversations with, with this brother started shifting to how do we work now to build something that will build on itself in generations to come. How can we start to build something now that sons can take up, sons who have been raised up in the fear and admission of the Lord, a godly seed presented to Christ, can take up and press forward um, with the aim of taking Scotland back for Christ. Knox and the Covenanters had done great work in that land, uh, but that land had been has been eroded by unfaithful churches, right? Just as churches are salt and light and transform a land, when they betray Christ, the curse they bring on themselves on themselves will, uh, will be a curse for the people around them as well. Mm-hmm. And so Scotland you know, is facing the curse of the Lord because of the infidelity of her churches. 
how can we retake this land back unto Christ and the blessings that are found in allegiance to him? And so we were talking about things that I had just not much interest in, to, uh, you know, and this is my own fault. Back when I was in college and, and shortly thereafter, we were talking about the goodness of the centrality of uh, Christian families and even the, the, the effect of Christian families far out distancing, even the effect of good things like street preaching, mm-hmm. right? We were talking about Christians starting businesses. So instead of being servants in the marketplace, uh, being masters of the marketplace, uh, capturing capital from the market and, and having it fund all the good work we're trying to do by us starting our own businesses, hiring our own guys, handing it off to our own sons. Um, all these things in addition to regulated worship in the local church, regulated by the word of God. And, 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 and with, the, with the centrality of families, we, we started talking about the importance of Christian education. You know, I yeah. grew up in a Christian home, but spent the entirety of my education in secular schooling. And so we, we started talking about the centrality, the importance of Christian education, and even to the point where now that brother has started a Christian school in Scotland, which is a place which makes it very difficult to start anything like that. So that's, that's the backdrop in terms of my journey that brought me then to California, right, where we then started having conversations, which uh-huh. has really affected uh, basically our plans and dreams, our plots for... Uh, seeing resurrection in America, right? So speak to that, that eschatology impacting our, our goals and, and what are our goals in, a, in an ideal world? What's the playbook? What's the playbook we're trying to execute with the remainder of our lives? Yeah. Step one for us is to get out of California. Uh, not because, go ahead. Well, okay, so um, is that not, is that not to some degree Cowardly isn't California the place where the battle's hottest, the place where faithful men are needed the most? Why would you leave in yeah. a time where the so, where crisis is on us? Sure. So I I don't think it's a haven't you read of Stonewall Jackson? <laughs> I don't think it's a moral question uh, in terms of what's like I don't think it's a moral wrong to stay in California, uh, fight for uh, the gospel, preach the gospel unto you know immense persecution. Even the you know the thought you had about Afghanistan, the, one of the problems with that mindset is people make that ultimate. That's the only thing that makes you a, a legit Christian. You know, what, what country are you going to go die in? That's, that's what legit Christianity is, neglecting the reality that, you know, somebody's working hard to pay your bills for you to even go over there and do that. I don't need um, much to live on. <laughs> but Definitely don't need much to die on. Yeah, but, you know, those things being Just good. Just one hill. Anything else? Uh, for now, I'm, I'm satisfied. <laughs> uh, those, those being moral goods in and of themselves, uh, we still want to be wise and have a good strategy uh, in a land that is, you know, pushing us out with a zooming out and taking a, a long-term perspective on something. Uh, if I think about, you know, having kids in California, raising them up here, doing my best to do that well, it's going to be extremely hard. And at this point, you know, things change over years. But at this point, I know I would tell my, my sons to run. Go establish yourself somewhere else where you can build something uh, long-lasting that California's not going to seek to tear down. Uh, I'd rather go. I'd rather leave California to destroy itself, which it's doing. I mean, we don't have to do anything to 
to liberal California for them to kill them. So they voluntarily bring their babies to the slaughterhouses. Uh, they, you know, men lie with men, women with women. They'll die. They'll kill themselves off quickly. They make horrible laws. They they're they're not going to last long. And so I'd rather destroy industry for the sake of yeah. funding uh, dependence on drugs and the government. That's right. So they're you know it's a it's a sinking ship. And I'd rather I'd rather leave, build an army, strategically speaking, and then come back and conquer it. Maybe literally speaking. <laughs> yeah, in a sense, uh, come back and conquer it uh, with an army rather than you know die with it. So it's it's again it's not a it's not a moral a moral wrong to stay here and fight for Christ, but I think with a long term view, uh, I think it's a better strategy. I think it's objectively better to leave to build something good uh, to train up our children. Uh, you're talking about a place where it's far from uh, far from like uh, an overstatement to say like you know homeschooling and things like that. Christian education is going to be outlawed. You know, it's not it's coming. Yeah, that's not like an outlandish statement. That's not extremist. Yeah. Like that's very likely. And so I want to get to a place where I can do those things, where I can raise up a family, where I can afford to do so. Yeah. Right? I mean, this, this state loves the idea that, you know, there's Christians thinking about, like, how many kids can I have? That's not a that, – that question morally, which we've talked about with fruitfulness. We have a, a whole podcast on fruitfulness if you have questions about that. But that's morally not on the table for Christians to be, you know, playing God about how many kids you should have. Uh, condoms are gay. Condoms are gay. And so uh, – you know, go to a place where you where that's not even uh, where that's not such of a such a struggle. Uh, go somewhere where you can build uh, build a culture, um, see the gospel, not just uh, impact your children and uh, help you train them up in the way they should go, but impact your church, your community. Uh, take over, take over a place which you know we talked about a little bit last night. We were having cigars talking about uh, you know we talk about radical Islam. And the thing that's really radical about Islam is, you know, they they believe what they believe and they seek to serve their God. He's a false God. Allah's a false God. Uh, but they do seek to serve him and they recognize that he uh, he wants everything, right? He wants dominion over everything, which sounds a lot like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus says he's, you know, he's king over everything. He has all authority. Dominion has been given to him. Uh, and so he wants he wants everything. So yeah, we wanna we wanna serve him in such a way that uh, we preach the gospel and apply the truths of his word uh, without fear, without reservation, and in doing so, he's gonna conquer his foes, and we're gonna see uh, entire societies, long-term entire nations transformed. So we wanna be a part of that and go to a place where we can seek to start establishing that. We don't have, you know, fanciful ideas of that happening in our lifetime. That's not the goal. Uh, the goal is is long-term fruit, uh, being seeds used by the Lord uh, to grow big trees where generations down the line, um, you know, our sons, sons, sons are, are seeing that kind of stuff. We want uh, to be the right seed dying in the right soil, bearing a hundredfold fruit. That's right. Yeah, I was talking to, I was talking to a gentleman last night at, a, at the wedding reception we were at and uh, talking about his, his mom. Socially distant? <laughs> Negative. Uh, talking to his, about his mom who, uh, so it's our buddy's grandma, uh, non-Christian husband, she shared the gospel with her son when he was maybe six, seven years old, and it was uncomfortable for her. She was a you know Southern woman, so it was just kind of you go to church, that's a thing you do. I don't want to talk about it, but you know felt the burden of it enough from enough questions from her son to where she sits him down, shares the gospel with him. He comes to faith at a young age, 
rough home life, unfaithful husband, and uh, now you look and then we have you know our friends getting married today, and uh, he's a Christian, sister's a Christian, Lord willing, our buddy will have lots of kids, and all that's the fruit of just this grandma sharing the gospel with her son uh, in the midst of you know bad home life, and the tree, Lord willing, will just continue to grow and grow and grow. That grandma just sowed a seed. So our, our goal is to not do anything crazy. Uh, we want to sow seeds of the gospel in a in a community where we can uh, do that, um, not just for a generation and then die off, but for, for years and years to come. Before I shift my thoughts to outside of California, one, one observation regarding California, um, you know, we're looking at the state and seeing just how tyrannical it is and how opposed to biblical Christianity, the rule of Christ, it is, and how difficult it goes out of its way to be, um, how difficult it, it tries to make just basic Christianity, even with just its economic tyranny, how difficult it tries to make basic Christian fruitfulness. Um, but it, it's interesting that the, the Christians, the churches with the quote-unquote most success in California and the most long-term aspirations... Um, for their own hands in the state are Christians that range from um, apathy, right? And uh, an eschatological or rather a cultural apathy to more explicit negative cultural and eschatological views. So you've got the MacArthurites who are all over California who are not apathetic about cultural happenings, but everything that happens in California fits perfectly with their expectations and right. so it doesn't actually cause that much discomfort uh, or interruption to their agenda because they've built their agenda with the assumption that everything's going to be falling apart and they don't really they're not trying to build everything in the realm of what all is falling apart right so as long as my pulpit is standing and I've got pews set up I'm fine and the same can be said for the you know like the Escondido guys the apathy just up the road from us right. to kingdom theology just this like this uh this divorcing of uh what does the gospel you know what the gospel does to the heart and then what the gospel does to society as if uh you know you becoming a christian doesn't change every aspect of your life that's called unfaithfulness there's no <laughs> difference between a non-christian and a christian plumber yeah that's that's just not true yeah uh and it's it's not true in the individual and then broadly speaking you know it might be full of something but they're doing their jobs <laughs> differently yeah in a company uh a company is going to function markedly different if it's marked by Christian employees versus non-Christian employees. Yes. And that's going to be the same for, for a society. So uh, the gospel affects everything. When you have uh, a new heart, uh, Jesus wants, just like he wants dominion over everything, he wants dominion over everything in the, the macrocosm and the microcosm of your life. We don't give him some parts. It's, it's everything and uh, it makes everything better. And these theologies that allow for these Christian groups to be very comfortable and quote-unquote successful in California are the very theologies that produce a California, right? So we want to produce a state generations down the road uh, that is explicitly covenanted with Christ. And so um, every area of life then uh, we, we are explicitly saying must be Christian in our own lives and must be Christian in his life. Right, exactly. So it's the it's that it's the application points where it's gonna where the rubber's gonna meet the road. Yeah, we can say we can preach the expectations and applications. Yeah, preach a gospel. You know, substantively, that's the same in terms of you know who Christ is and what He's done. 
but what that affects is where the rubber meets the road, and that's where uh, Old Testament Christology, liberalism. Most people are more people are going to be mad at you, mm-hmm. um, but you're also going to have uh, you know the heat of the the heat of God's law applied to to people where they need it, yeah. uh, and then see reformation in those areas. So we could spend hours talking about the problems in California and how that builds to a decision to leave, mm-hmm. right? But then turning our backs on California for a time to come back another day all the stronger yep, uh, or to come back on a day when California is all the weaker. And looking elsewhere, you know, we want to, to move to a land where there's at least space for us to... Uh, as Christian men start these long-term building projects and trust that our sons will, will take it forward. Mm-hmm. Um, run me through, you know, moving to some place like that, obviously a matter of first principle is, is having uh, a solid church that will literally be the, the soul of everything else, mm-hmm. right? And so t- talk to me through what that looks like, how you go about uh, starting something like that. Sure. Uh, I mean, so we've, we've talked a lot about, you know, how, how do we want to go? We, we ideally want to be sent. So uh, being a part of a church down here in San Diego, uh, you know, having conversations there, seeking to leave well. Um, I pastor the church down here. So practically speaking for us, uh, the goal is for me to be sent uh, for us to go up there. Uh, and again, it's similar to kind of the long-term goal of what we have. How do we accomplish the long-term goal? Well, uh, pretty simply, the goal is to go up there, uh, start preaching the word, nothing fancy, just preach God's word. Uh, we're not reinventing anything at all. Uh, preach the word, administer the sacraments, uh, and then on the day-to-day, uh, saturate a community with tons of evangelism. Uh, we're looking to go to Idaho, uh, looking to put ourselves between a few colleges, so get on the college campuses, uh, preach the gospel there, uh, go into the city, continue to minister at the, the front doors of Planned Parenthood, places like that. Um, so let the gospel do its work in a community. And then on, uh, on the Lord's Day, uh, have a rich Lord's Day, uh, lots of meeting together, lots of feasting, preaching the word, uh, biblical prayers. Um, and that's pretty much it. Singing psalms. Yeah. Psalms only. <laughs> no. Lots of psalms. Um. And then you are you are looking to have a whole mess of kids. Yeah. Looking to have families in your church with big messes of kids. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of, if you're going to speak in broad brush patterns, what kind of pattern are you hoping to set for those families for what the day in and day out Christian training of their children looks like? Obviously, every yeah. detail is a matter of Christian training. All things right. matter of religion. But give, give me a... A framework that you're going to be calling fathers to step into with their families. Yeah, uh, so I'd say day to day looks like family worship. So, husbands, fathers leading their families in uh, in discipleship in the day to day, which is really just a microcosm of Sundays, right? Good prayers, uh, teachings in the Word, obviously much shorter, uh, manageable. Um, a lot of guys struggle with that that aspect, mm-hmm. doing like the the teachings in the word. Yeah, both knowing even what to say and for how long to speak. Speak uh-huh. to a guy who's like struggling to really um, take that up competently, confidently. Yeah, uh, so you're probably going to have and you should have uh, still your own Bible time. 
And so if you're struggling with a family worship thing, you know, get a good study Bible. Uh, Joel Beakey has a good Reformation Heritage Bible. Um, or a good, you know, there's plenty of like family worship guides. Beakey has one, some old Puritans, you can find family worship guides. Uh, so don't, don't be too prideful to take up something like that and just mimic it. Uh, and as time goes on, you can, I remember when I first started uh, doing public prayers for the church, I just would read Valley of Vision prayers. So I'm like, man, I, I really want to do a good job. I know these are good prayers. I, I'm edified by them. I'm just going to read that. And after a few weeks of doing that, get more comfortable, start to pick up on uh, their trends, the way that they pray. Um, and then, you know, and even the way we're supposed to shape prayers, it's just you're reading Psalms, apply those Psalms to a to a prayer, to a people group, uh, the sins they're struggling with, whatever it may be. And it starts to become your own thing. So do the same thing with family worship. Uh, and then don't, don't bite off more than you need to. Uh, you're trying to establish long-term patterns. That's part of why, you know, you were talking earlier about even more than street preaching, family worship. Street preaching is, you know, a few times a week maybe, but for the person that you're preaching to, it might be the, you know, that one person maybe just one time, right? Whereas family worship is ideally day in and day out for years. These are just, this is just a meal every single day for your family. Uh, and meals make you grow long-term. You don't even, you know, you can't remember what you had for breakfast three weeks ago, but it sustained you. It Bang. <laughs> yeah, I you had, had a bang. A, you had a bang. It sustained you. It grew you. Uh, and you're only here. Yes, be- it did. You're only here because of that meal and all the meals in be- from then to now. And so that's that's what family worship is going to be. Uh, and so with that long term perspective, what's more important is you know a little bit of faithfulness every day is the goal. Not not you know you don't have to read three chapters, long exposition. Uh, this is something I think you should be doing with your wife. And so because you're doing it with your wife, you're also doing it when your kid is not even a year old, right? And so you might be thinking, oh, this is something I'll start when they're five or six. No, you want you don't want them to remember a day where this wasn't a part of a part of their life. What kind of expectations do you put on your kid, especially um, when that kid is so young that you're not really expecting much intellectual engagement? Mm-hmm. I mean, kids probably absorb way more than I give them credit for. Uh-huh. Um, even I, I caught Zuki the other day quoting poetry. I didn't even know she was reading it. Yeah. But what what kind of uh, behavioral expectations do you put on your even your own kids mm-hmm. in that time? And how do you then discipline to that? Yeah. Uh, so you don't have to go this extreme. We bought a Scantron machine. And Bryn takes a Scantron test once a week on different sets of catechism I'm questions. impressed that she can even fill in the, the circle well enough for the Scantron to be scanned. Are she they, points and I fill them in for her. Gotcha. Are these Scantron still a thing? I don't know. Gotcha. Now, Bryn's 13 months old. We don't do that. Didn't realize but. how old you were. <laughs> uh, I see you're left behind. I raised you a Scantron. That wasn't funny. <laughs> you laughed twice now. Because of how not funny it was. I liked the attempt. The attempt was funny in and of itself. But anyway, uh, if for Bryn, I don't have like a... Really, the expectation is I just try to keep things brief uh, and exciting to her. So... Uh, Brin's at the genealogy. <laughs> Brin's at the stage where she's learned, like she's starting to learn sign language. So, working through the first co- couple questions of the catechism. Your daughter is deaf and dumb. <laughs> yes. No, she's not. Wow. She's not intelligible in her language most <laughs> of the time. Uh, so just just trying to uh, you know use uh, like pointing you know up to the sky. God made me, and have her point to her chest. Little things like that. Uh, that hopefully long-term will be shaping her. Uh, and then anytime uh, thinking about application, just a couple sentences that I can say to her, I don't use baby talk, but I'm just 
a couple sentences that over time I hope are helpful for her in terms of applying a text, you know, to her life. And then uh, I've seen an odd, an odd pattern with these applications. Obey daddy and mommy. She seems to be regularly what the Bible's calling her to. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, in terms of discipline, we're, we haven't at this point really had any issues disciplining in terms of uh, family worship time. Uh, I mean, anytime she's fussy, we discipline fussiness, but that's, you know, discipline's kind of a whole separate conversation. So if she's fussy in that time, she'll get disciplined for that. But it's not like a direct application to uh, family worship time. I think moving on in time as she grows up, she'll be expected to be more attentive, uh, not fiddling around, but just sitting, listening. And so part of not exasperating your kids is uh, always being willing to evaluate those things. So don't set a rigid standard that you're going to hold your kids to without a willingness to evaluate. As this even fair? Like I'm making my kids sit here for, making my young son sit here for 20 minutes while we go through this thing. And it's like, over time, yeah, I want him to develop a stamina with that. Uh, but I just have to be willing to evaluate that. How much of this is, you know, his sin and then how much of it is like, gosh, I'm like making my boy just, I'm just exasperating him. Uh, so I think just a willingness to evaluate the thing, but back to, back to the, the point we started on, uh, a little bit of faithfulness. So keep it brief, uh, sing good songs, uh, pray concise, uh, faithful prayers. Don't make prayers lofty and long. That's just a good note for most of the Christian life, right? Just make your prayers pointed, seasoned with faith, biblical. Uh, that's, that's what you want to train your kids in. You don't want them to be getting, you know, bored with how long you're praying and, and things like that. So those are kind of some practicals for the day to day. And then in terms of fathers, just dis- discipling children, uh, sons, especially just, you know, eventually taking them to work and letting them see how, how all of that applies to you in the workplace, which is a high call in terms of, you know, okay, consistency so- in your life. Yeah, then uh, connect your your labors as a father in family worship, catechism, the uh, kind of more easily recognizable Christian duties of a father, right? And then lumping in that the game of catch in the backyard and uh, the mowing the grass in white New Balances, all those things. Connect that to then your efforts with your son at work. And then broadly, even an idea of Christian business. What what makes it better that a Christian business is Christian, uh, both in uh, who's running it and who's working it? Mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentally, you have uh, an objective standard for integrity, honor, those kind of things. Uh, you're submitting everything in your life unto Christ. So it's all to be done to his glory. Uh, so you don't have that, uh, you know. There's a, like I said, there's an objective standard by which to judge uh, any kind of like backhanded business, stuff like that. Um, so you're walking your son through, you know, those temptations, what it looks like to honor Christ in this. Remembering that he sees everything we do, you know, even the behind closed doors business work. Uh, and then playing catch and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know how you would. That's kind of separate to me. It's a separate thing. But well, I was lumping it in like the the at home discipleship mm-hmm. to that work. So I threw in catch because it's at least behind the home. Obviously, yeah. you're teaching your son the ways of magic with catch, but it's at home <laughs> discipleship. Yeah. Versus at work discipleship, and they're they're interplay with one another. And then where we're going is what's the connection of these things with the idea of schooling, mm-hmm. and and what your desires are for for the schooling of your children. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, one thing with, with public school that I think you and I both had, you had, well, you had 
we were both discipled in the same thing at school, but you should have been being discipled in something completely different. Right. So you were raised as a Christian. Yeah. So I was raised as a as a non Christian. So secular schools is whatever. Right. Right. But for you, you know, you, you have kind of things coming from two different angles. This idea that education, that anything could be divorced from the objective truth of God, uh, yeah. and then learning, you know, somehow outside of that realm, but then like having this other part of your life. So you were, you know, raised with this segregation of. Yeah. This is what this is science. This is I was raised in two covenant or, or two kingdom theology. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Here's, and here's so, my Christianity. Going to church. Here's the gospel by which you're saved, and here's everything else which is determined by a hatred of God, right. a mockery of God, and a rejection of Christ. Instead of the fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge, and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. That didn't make any sense to me until I went to college. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you can apply that certainly to you know even that to catch in the backyard. Uh, you know, it's a gift from God. Time to to bond with your son or son to bond with his father uh, to know that he cares about him and just to enjoy a good gift from God uh, when it's not that you know it's God doesn't delight in that at all uh, God delights in us delighting in the gifts as as being from him the giver uh, so we want to we want not only to have a, a good church but we want to from that also build long term a good school uh, you know where you can be the assistant coach of multiple sports um, Drop down and give me 2,500 push-ups right now. You ain't going anywhere for supper till you giving me every last one. Yeah. He's been working on that for a while, so. Don't believe him. It comes naturally. <laughs> but we want to we wanna apply, uh, you know, we want to apply Christ, his truth to every aspect of life, to have a school where we're uh, training up men to... Uh, yeah, not just be good disciplers in their home, but from there, be good disciplers in their community. Uh, like you were talking about earlier, ideally bosses in the community, supervisors in the community, building their own uh, companies, businesses, and therefore, uh, you know, discipling not just uh, their sons, but other men's sons as they're, uh, you know, giving them jobs and stuff like that. Uh, so we want to see uh, saturation in the community, and that's going to take not just a good church, but a good school uh, where we're... What's your goal for your daughter in that kind of school? To learn how to be a mom. Uh, to learn how to think really well. To think for herself. Um, to be able to apply uh, similar to similar to a son in, in that uh, I want them to be able to apply the truth of God to their own lives and to the community around them. Uh, but not training men and women as if they have the exact same calling from God. They can do whatever they want. Conquering um, for Christ, unto Christ. Nurturing unto Christ. Right. And so... Uh, Having our own school gives us the opportunity to actually do that well for women to not uh, be placed in, you know, we have a society now where uh, women are taught to hate what naturally they love. And so we want to, we actually want to cultivate those loves, uh, see them sanctified, refined, grown, uh, so that they can be uh, great moms who, uh, you know, we're not talking about motherhood divorced from true rigorous learning. Uh, moms are going to be cheap, like big time disciplers of their kids we want husbands who work. We don't want stay-at-home dads. And so... Nor do we want dads on welfare. Yeah, that's probably worse. <laughs> and so we want uh, we want moms who are able to disciple their children well. And that's going to take a ton of learning, a ton of training. Uh, so we're far from anti-moms you know, moms learning, women learning. Uh, we want a ton of learning for them. Uh, and then learning how to do the station that God has gifted them with well. So they're being educated unto motherhood. Yep. The, the, the education they go through, even in 
uh, a rigorous classical Christian school, classical in the sense of uh, those students being trained not just what to believe, but how to think well. Mm-hmm. Um, th- they're being trained in that schooling context for a vocation within the home, whereas the boys growing into manhood are being trained for a vocation outside the home. And, uh, and we're okay with that. We're not trying to rebel against that or ignore the fundamental difference in nature between boys and girls, men and women. Um, Anything else to say about uh, Christian schooling? Broad brush strokes? Okay, nope. and then, uh, you know, long term, what are your thoughts about uh, seminary education? If we're, if we're trying to raise up sons to replace us in our vocations, right, and in our family duties, we're also trying to raise up sons to replace us in our ecclesiastical duties, right? So unto the ministry. Right. And uh, so seminary kind of is the existing structure by which young men are trained to take up ministerial posts. What do you think about that? Why? What's your, what's your reforming hope? Sure. I think one of the problems, I don't think we've talked about this much on the podcast at all, but one of the problems we would have with uh, seminary education as it stands is... Uh, How boring it is. Yeah. A divorcing between uh, pastoral ministry and theological training. So we want to we want to keep those things united. You know, a seminary is going to be the best seminaries are going to make sure that uh, the people being trained in their in their seminaries in their institutions are uh, having some type of pastoral load with it, which is very difficult to accomplish. In terms of a consistency of it, you might have like a semester where you need to be you know you basically treat it as an internship. Go be a pastoral intern for a semester, and that's that's part of your seminary education. But the majority of your education, you're apart from the local church. Uh, apart from the sheep, apart from you know just the day in day out grind of pastoral ministry, so we want to we want to keep those things connected and ideally uh, eventually have a theological college where we're training people in house, raising them up, uh, and not just for ourselves. We want to we want to raise up our own men for our own ranks and then to send out. We want to be uh, a place that's sending uh, sending pastors out long term. So. Uh, None of that really involved. We don't want to pull back on the, the rigor of the training. So we want the rigor of the training, but we want to combine it with, uh, we want to combine it with being a part of a local church. So you have accountability there for your own life uh, in you know, how you're loving your family well. Uh, what are you, what's discipleship look like in your life? Are you, you know, pouring into other people? Are you, are you evangelizing those kind of things? Um, yeah, so that'd be like that'd be a baseline. And and also just observing that just as the Bible is the treasure of the church and not the academy, mm-hmm. so too is theological training, ministerial training, preparation, the duty of the church and not the academy. Mm-hmm. But really we've got it all flipped around where publishing houses and the academy run the Bible like a whore and the academy runs theological training and so the, the very context of, of the things being learned and also the content being learned gets skewed by misunderstanding of whose duty it is. Right. And it's easier, it's way easier to go to a, to go to a college and answer some essays the right way in terms of a character assessment, right? Have some old guy who doesn't know you well, who pastored you when you were a kid, write to the college to talk about how great of a guy you are. And you have all this sin in your life that if they ask your local church pastor about, you would not be going to that seminary if that seminary was worth anything. Uh, whereas in a local church, uh, you're known, so there's no hiding. So you actually are, that part of the reason 
that this theological training is supposed to happen in a pastoral context because if these guys are getting trained to be a pastor, there's character qualifi- qualifications that go along with it. So you're going to train a guy who has no business being a pastor who really wants it because he thinks it's you know a road to easy street the rest of his life. Just preach a sermon on Sundays. He's decent at public speaking, so I guess I should just go be a pastor. I can sit and play video games the rest of the week or whatever, have a sweet office. Um, in a local church, you can't hide those things. Uh, you know, Especially if you're a family man, uh, you want people who can assess how are you discipling your kids. You want to be, a, you want to go be a, a pastor and shepherd sheep in Christ's church, but you don't have, you're not shepherding your own family. You have no business doing that, so it's not the time. And your pastor is going to know if he's a good pastor. Yeah, it's not the time, man. Sorry. Uh, last thing, all these things we we want to do in a context of a small town, mm-hmm. not a big city. Why is that? Uh, you know, part of the reason is because big cities just swallow up people trying to do this kind of work because it requires a lot of sacrifice in terms of, you know, like we talked about having having big families and stuff like that. That's not very manageable. And then we want to also, uh, we want to look at something that's uh, like conquerable. So with where we're at now, we're a small group. We got a small group of friends who want to go up there uh, and we're seeking to do something long term, uh, but that's going to require a lot of time to establish. And so we need, we need time and space to do that. Uh, that kind of thing is just going to get eaten up in a big city. Uh, a city's not we're not we're not the size to be able to conquer a city. Uh, a town is manageable. That's something that over generations we could see. I mean, literally, if we if it's a town where there's you know people not reproducing and then we're reproducing a ton and God's blessing that and we're discipling well, uh, we're going to see that community transform just just by playing the numbers game. Yeah. Which again is why you know family discipleship is so so vital to seeing. Uh, Christ conquer. That's right. Well, in just a few minutes, uh, one of the central acts of Christian obedience and central um, pursuits to all the goals we've been talking about is about to go down. Some vows are going to be given. Uh, a marriage covenant is going to be made. Uh, a new union will exist. Yep. And uh, more conquest will be had as a result. So we're going to go get ready for that. For partay. And with that, until next time, this has been Stone Mountain Media. You go with God. Cross me.